So here we are at the fourth Sunday of Advent. The waiting and anticipation, the quietness and candle lighting, it's leading up to this moment of the Nativity. On Christmas Eve, which Mark just gave us a little preview of, <laughs> we will gather to light that final Christ candle. We will gather to let every heart prepare him room. All of our songs, all of our scriptures, our sacrament and the candles are like holding vigil outside of Mary's delivery room, anticipating the birth of Jesus in history and welcoming the mystery of Jesus being born in us right now and looking forward to the fullness of Jesus' reign in majesty. History, mystery, and majesty. I didn't come up with that. I don't know who did. On that first Sunday of Advent, you might remember way back on December 1st, we explored how to wake up and to stay awake to God and God's work in the world. I wonder if anyone remembers the answer to that. How do we stay awake to God's work in the world? So prayer. Prayer is what wakes us up, and prayer is what keeps us awake. Because when we are saturating our broken world in prayer, we're living like Jesus did. When we pray, our eyes are opened to both the physical realities of this world and to the spiritual realities of God's kingdom being built right in our midst. Prayer is our anchor to the hope of Jesus. So I have a hunch, though, that if you pray, a lot of us probably keep our prayers to ourselves. Maybe it's because some of us are afraid of sounding silly or saying the wrong words. I promise there's really no wrong way to pray. There's no wrong words. Maybe it's because we consider ourselves to be private people and prayer is really personal. And on one hand, I agree, prayer is really personal and it is really private and it is intimate. It's a connection with you and God through the Holy Spirit. But what if we expanded our practice of prayer to include the community of believers? We read this psalm this morning together, Psalm 80. We read it not as a solitary psalm, but it's a perfect example of living our faith in community with others. It's not just David praying. It's a whole host of people praying together. Psalm 80 is a communal prayer. It's a group of people who confess their brokenness and their frustrations. It's a group of individuals who are looking around and realizing they're not alone. They're joining arms and aim with each other. They're petitioning God together, a mighty force together, saying, restore us. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is a group of people who is committing together to never turn
from God. Give us life, they declare, and we will call on your name. We. So what would it be like to have a group of people watching over one another in love? Seeking God's best for one another. Desiring to follow God together. It sounds lovely, I'm sure, but it's actually incredibly challenging. Because, yeah, we're all wired for connection and community. I think we know that. But the other people really make life difficult, don't they? Other people are what make life painful. I mean, wouldn't we all be amazing Christians if we were by ourselves and weren't for everyone else? So years ago, Kevin and I lived in western New York. We lived in a tiny studio apartment, a basement apartment. There was one room that we used as our bedroom, our living space, our dining room, and our office. And we loved it. During this time, I was beginning to explore some personal spiritual disciplines in a new way. I was feeling drawn to the practice of solitude and silence with God in the morning. The problem was, like I just said, we lived in a studio apartment. There was no privacy, no personal space. But I figured something out. He's smiling. I would wake up each morning before sunrise and I would climb the stairs to this landing that led to the upstairs homeowner's dwelling and the door was locked to keep their space separate from ours. So I created this little uh, nest for myself at the top of the stairs. And in this four foot little square, I would situate myself with a candle and a Bible and my journal and I would read and pray and I would sometimes weep and I would sometimes fall back to sleep. And Kevin, for whatever reason, God bless him, was willing to accommodate my earnestness, respecting my desire for complete silence until I came down the staircase again. I'm not kidding. Complete silence. He, he would sometimes breathe too loud and I was frustrated by it. <laughs> Looking back, I see how unaccommodating I was being in my earnest desire to seek God and be transformed into Christ's likeness. I forgot that I couldn't live my entire life in solitude, especially once I had decided to be married. And we were not newlyweds. This is like six or seven years into marriage. I forgot it was unreasonable and inconsiderate to ask my spouse to not move a muscle as long as I was in my sacred staircase. <laughs> and I always seem to forget that whatever I was learning from Jesus in those times of prayer and solitude and scripture reading was supposed to accompany me down the stairs to living with my husband, to living in community with others. It's crazy, I think, how quickly we forget the fruit of the Spirit as soon as we are back in the presence with other human beings. <laughs> Around that 
that same time, though, uh, by God's mercy, I picked up this book by Richard Mulholland that later became a textbook in my master's class. It was called An Invitation to a Journey. And in it, Mulholland describes spiritual formation as the process of being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. What? <laughs> I thought this was just about me. For the sake of others? I thought this being a Christian thing was just me and Jesus. What? Who said anything about other people? But the Holy Spirit used Mulholland's book to help me identify a flaw, crucial flaw, in my holy plan. Practicing spiritual disciplines by myself was only half the story, and it would only get me so far in becoming like Jesus. Not only are my personal spiritual practices actually for the sake of transforming me for the sake of others, to be more kind and loving and gentle and generous to others, but to live in community with others, with other believers, we are to live out spiritual rhythms together that help us follow Jesus together. Corporate spiritual disciplines. So that takes me to this last week. I just finished reading a book called The Class Meeting. It's called The Class Meeting, Reclaiming a Forgotten and Essential Small Group Experience. It's a book by a, a Wesleyan, um, excuse me, a Methodist professor, Kevin Watson. Now, some of you may know that John Wesley is the uh, founder, per se, of the Methodist movement. Wesleyans, Methodists, all hail back to John Wesley in the 1700s. John Wesley never started a Methodist church. He was an Anglican priest who came up with methodical ways, hence the Methodist, to follow Jesus. So way back in the 1700s, John Wesley developed three circles for Christian spiritual formation. The society meeting, the class meeting, and the band meeting. Each of these served a distinct purpose for cultivating transformational Christians. The society meeting is a large congregational gathering for worship and sacrament. The class is a small group of seven to 12 men and women who meet weekly for soul care, watching over one another in love. The band is an intimate circle of three to four individuals who are committed to intense accountability to confession of sin, to freedom in Christ. Watson, concerning the class meeting, Kevin Watson writes this, a class meeting is a small group that is primarily focused on transformation, not information. Watson actually says in his book that he believes the Sunday school movement is, is what halted spiritual discipleship because we focus too much on information and we're not actually keeping each other accountable to living out scripture. We could read scripture for the rest of our lives and never be changed. Change happens in community with others. So in these class meetings, people learn how to interpret their entire lives 
through the lens of the gospel. They build a vocabulary for giving voice to their experience with God. And they grow in faith in Christ. We need each other. And he goes on and says, rather than being focused on transferring information or ideas about Christianity, the early Methodist class meeting was focused on helping people come to know Jesus Christ and learn how to give every aspect of their lives to loving and serving Christ. John Wesley felt so strongly about this, he did not mince words. He insisted on the necessity of these groups. He thought they were crucial to helping people become like Christ and to grow in love of God and love of others. He went so far as to say this, never omit your class or band. These are the very sinews of our society. And whatever weakens our regard for these strikes at the very root of our community. Wesley, Wesley wasn't ever afraid that the Methodist church would cease to exist. He was afraid that the Methodist church would cease to exist in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's like Pastor Kevin preached last week, you can have a virus, but it's not alive. It's not a living thing. To have a church does not mean you have the power of the Holy Spirit. To go to church does not mean you are living like Christ and being transformed in love of God and love of others. That happens in a smaller group. Okay, John Wesley, Kevin Watson, I hear you. Yeah, these are strong words. But I have personal experience with these types of meetings, the class meeting and the band meeting. And I agree with Wesley entirely. There is no church without small discipleship communities. Having a consistent group of people who ask me, how is your life with God? How is it with your soul? It's the most effective way that I've grown in my relationship with Jesus. It's how I receive the healing and wholeness that Jesus has to offer us. And it's how I find the courage and receive clarity to know how he's invited me to bring that healing and wholeness out into the world in the presence of others. These people receive my confessions. They don't offer excuses. They offer forgiveness. They notice where I'm growing. They listen to my story week after week and they remember, look at what you've done. Look at how you're growing. Look at where God is taking you. They help me pay attention to God. These people love me and I love them so entirely that they are an embodiment of God's love for me. They're a taste of what it means to be loved by God. We all need that. And not only that, these people become the ones who share our lives, the ins and outs, so much that they are the support system. Because I, as a pastor, can't possibly care for every person's need. Because in a week's time, we go through a lot. We need someone who's hearing our story during the week, week in and week out, 
who will be there for us, who are the first people who care for us, who love us. So I believe the crucial nature of being a Christian is that it demands that life be lived in community with others. We cannot be spiritually transformed into the image of Jesus without the help of other people. We cannot learn all we need for the Christian life by ourselves. John Wesley believed this. The Free Methodist founder, B.T. Roberts, also believed that these were crucial. And I believe this. The question is, do you? I think it's so easy to come to church with a very privatized mindset, the same kind that I had in my staircase faith. It's me and God going up to my holy mountain. You better not disturb me. So we have this individual spiritual box. It's me and Jesus. And just like I insisted that Kevin do things my way so as to not disturb my holy time, most of us come to church with a similar mindset. We have a very specific idea of what needs to be in this hour together in order for me to get the most out of it. We convince ourselves that coming to church is about growing in our faith, it's about being fed, it's about singing songs that will encourage me. But it's not. The larger truth of church is this. We come together every Sunday not to be served, but to serve God together. We come to do a work together that is literally impossible to do by ourselves. The work of a community worshiping God. So for a while, for one hour, we set aside our personal preferences and our hopes and our demands and we come to bear with each other. We come to forgive one another, to pass Christ's peace to each other because that's what unites us. We come to lift up our voices with the people around us who may not have good voices, to sing songs you may or may not like, to pray prayers you may or may not believe, and read scriptures you may or may not understand. <laughs> but in all of this, we trust the power of the Holy Spirit. Using this community, the scriptures we may or may not understand, the prayers we may or may not agree with, the songs we may or may not like, to transform us together into the image of Jesus. And so in this new year, we're coming up on 2020. That's the start of a new decade. And I believe I want to focus not just 2020, but the next decade or more on inviting people, teaching people how to live in community with one another. How to live out life-changing and, yes, super practical discipleship in the style of our founder, John Wesley's class meeting. Nurturing smaller gatherings of people who are caring for one another and loving people outside of our community for the sake of Christ. 
The class meeting, according to Watson and John Wesley, is a small group that is primarily focused on transformation, not information. That's the crucial part. Transformation. Where people learn how to interpret their entire lives through the lens of the gospel. Build a vocabulary for giving voice to their experience with God. And grow in faith in Christ. I'm looking forward to what God is going to do. I'm looking forward with hope and intention, praying that Jesus will raise up leaders who will value soul care, who will value transformation, that he will raise up a community of believers, starting here but expanding beyond the four walls, who will seek the healing and wholeness of Jesus together.